Okay, here's a statement. Remember the poor. We want to be a church that is good news to the poor in our region. We want to fully include and honor the economically disadvantaged. We want to advocate for the oppressed and strengthen the weak. That phrase, remember the poor, comes from Galatians 2, 9 through 10. Um, a little background before we read it. Paul has been doing ministry now for about three years after his conversion, obviously, right? And now he's kind of, he's been going off into Gentile territory, which is slightly controversial. It created a, well, I'm, I'm being facetious. It was very controversial, okay? And it created a lot of controversy, specifically around, you know, should, should these new Gentile converts be circumcised? Should they follow Jewish dietary laws in order to be fully accepted into the Christian community? How do, what do we do with these people, right? And in the middle of all that controversy, Paul comes back and he meets with the 12 original apostles or the 11 original apostles, right? And they're talking, it's kind of this question of, do, what do we do with Paul? This guy suddenly, you know, he meets Jesus on the road and now he's off doing this thing and they're kind of interviewing him and Paul wants to get kind of accepted into this group which he does and what he says is after he meets with James and Cephas and John so it says verse 9 and when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me me being Paul they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised meaning the Jews only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the only thing that those guys wanted to kind of charge and challenge Paul to do, after in all the things they could have been concerned about, the one thing they were primarily concerned about that Paul continued to do was remember the poor. It was that important to them. Going back to the Old Testament, the Israelites complained to God in Isaiah. We're going to read this scripture, and it's, I just, I'll just warn you ahead of time. This is convicting. But that's what I like to do. Just bring you along for the ride, okay? The Israelites are complaining to God that they're fasting, and he's not blessing them in return. God has been upset with them. They're trying to get back in God's good graces. It's the story of not just the Jews. It's your story, too. And so what they're doing is fasting. And that's the right response. And they're fasting to try to show God that they're repentant, humble, contrite of heart, that they've learned their lesson. It's an act of show, demonstrating their repentance to God. It's part of what fasting is, by the way. It's not just about denying yourself. It's about showing God that you are repentant. It's demonstrating what's in your heart. And God rebukes them, so they're complaining, God, how come you're not blessing us? We've been fasting, and it's really hard. Aren't you paying attention? You ever feel that way? Don't raise your hand, because that's a trick question after you read the next verses. So God rebukes them for fasting externally, but doing that with an arrogant and wicked heart. Okay, he says, you're fasting, but in your heart, you're not fasting. In your heart, you're prideful. In, heart, in your heart, you're still wicked. In your heart, you're still arrogant, but you're fasting, thinking you can be arrogant, but do this religious activity and please me, and God sees right through it. And then what he says, which we're going to read, he says, here's the fast. Let me describe for you the fast that I want to see you do, right? 
This is Isaiah 58, starting in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So the people are fasting supposedly as a sign of their repentance. And they're seeking to fast in order to show God that they are humble and contrite of heart. But their treatment of the poor and the oppressed shows their true heart. Doesn't it? They care more for their own glory than they do God's. They're only going through the motions of worship and repentance, and it's their mistreatment of the poor that actually betrays them. Amen. This renders their external acts of piety and worship meaningless before God. Their fasting is actually meaningless. Think about that for a minute. They're going without food. They're causing, like intentionally hurting to please God. And God says it's pointless because of the way you treat the poor. It actually offends him, I think. But here at the end of that, or second half, God's, in God's mercy, there's a hopeful promise, right? What's he say right there at the end? If they will pour themselves out for the hungry, then they will be called, quote, the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That will be their reputation. It's a pretty good promise. And this is what I want to be said about us. Not that we are really pious and follow all the right religious traditions and say and do all the right things, have really nice services, have really nice prayer meetings. You know, we fast a lot. We're very holy, externally holy people, but underneath that, our treatment of those who are poor and oppressed betrays the fact that we are actually not submitted to Christ, that we are not like him, and that we don't have hearts submitted to him. I want our reputation to be that we are the repairers of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. In other words, when there's a hole in the wall, when there's injustice, when there's weakness in our society, we stand in that hole and fix it. We fix the holes in the wall. And when the streets cannot be lived in because they're so dangerous, 
or destroyed or filled with trash, right? And the place, the city we live in cannot be dwelled in. We clean it up so that it can be lived in. That's a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be known for. Repairers of the breach and the restorer of the streets to dwell in. And I would say if we're not doing that, if we don't care about that, then there is a serious problem, not just with our methods, but with our actual hearts. That's what God says. Don't you be doing all this religious stuff that's good. Fasting is good. But don't you be doing that and thinking that I'll just not see through that and not be concerned about how you treat other people, okay? So I think before we go from here, I think we really need to think about what what the word poor means. Because if we define that wrong, we get into all kinds of problems, don't we? It's actually a very complex topic. We could spend a long time on it, but there's a couple of things. I want to define this as biblically as we can. First, I think the obvious meaning of that word in Scripture would be economically disadvantaged. This is a comparative measurement. We heard this, I think, if you were paying attention, we heard this in the testimonies from those that went to Mozambique recently. That compared to some people, you might feel like you are poor, right? Because you got to compare. The only way to understand economics is to compare, right? So you may feel like in your neighborhood, you're the poorest one because you have the worst car, maybe the smallest house, the worst, your grass doesn't grow. It's just a big sand dune with red ants in it, Right? And you haven't painted it in a long time. And you kind of feel like when you go to work and come home at the end of the day and you drive through your neighborhood, you kind of feel like, ah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of poor. But then you get on a plane, you fly like 18 billion hours over to Mozambique, and you, and you walk to church, and you pass mud huts, and you think, oh, I'm doing pretty good, right? Uh, I'm, this is poor. I thought I was poor, but now I realize my definition was wrong, okay? It's a very comparative term. Makes it hard to define, but in the U.S., it's very interesting. The poverty line is um, set, let me, uh, I've got some statistics here. In 2018, the federal poverty line was $12,140. This is an annual salary for an individual, 16460 for a family of two, 20,780 for a family of three, and 25,100 for a family of four. So they, and they set this number, I didn't know this, they set that number based on, just on food. In order to eat three squares a day, what does it take? That's where the poverty line is set. Now there's a lot of other things that you gotta have other than three square meals a day. You gotta have a roof over your head. There's other necessities. So that's a very low number. Okay, it doesn't account for any of the other stuff that you need. In addition, we have a rising number of people that are often called the working poor. Our church, we see people all the time in this category that come here and walk into the building during the week and need help. These are people that are working and they still can't make ends meet. A lot of times they're living in, you know where the King's Inn is down here, a couple of blocks away, where you can pay for a hotel room per day for every, you know, you pay, you get 24 hours. 
You pay again, you get 24 hours. You pay again, you get 24 hours. And there's a lot of people that are working every day just to scrape together enough money to get the gross hotel room for another 24 hours. So imagine this. You're on a hamster wheel, right, where you're, all of your time is spent just getting 24 hours of shelter, right? And then the next day, you just rinse and repeat. You do the same thing every single day, seven days a week, trying to scrape together money every day, just, and you never get ahead. We meet these people all the time. So I would call that poor also. They're not homeless, but they're teetering on that line all the time. They have a roof over their head, and part of you might say, well, they don't really need my help. They have a place to live. But I would say, interestingly enough, if you compare that person to the guy in Mozambique, we would probably say that person's not poor. The Mozambique guy is poor. But the guy in Mozambique would probably look at that person and pity them because they're living on this horrible hamster wheel. They're chained to the hamster wheel. They have zero freedom no dreams, no aspirations. Their only hope is to get a roof over their head for another day. And the guy living in the mud hut in Mozambique would go, man, that's no way to live. I mean, I've got my mud hut, but at least I can do stuff, right? So we have to be careful when we start comparing. Context is very important in how we understand what poverty is. You go driving through places like in Ash County and you'll find the same thing. We can simply, I think, define economically disadvantaged as anyone that struggles to obtain and keep the basic necessities of functioning, of functioning life in our society. What does it take to function? And if they can't get access to that or keep it, I think we can call them poor. Second category, I would get, I'm going to give you three. The first one was economically disadvantaged. The second is the oppressed. It's very clear in Scripture that that category is very important to God. In the ancient Near East, these would have been orphans and widows. Uh, Gentiles would be outsiders for a long period of Jewish history up until Paul and Peter changed that and Jesus. Samaritans, we're going to talk about the Samaritans in a minute. Very oppressed, very much outside. In modern America, we can have new categories, right, for what oppression and who is oppressed and who's not. And that's tough, by the way, because right now it seems like everybody wants to claim they're in an oppressed category, and it becomes very difficult to discern who's actually oppressed and who's not. And so I think what tends to happen, what happens in my heart is I get very cynical. I don't know if you have the same problem. And you start doing eye rolls all the time inside. Not, not, mature enough not to roll our eyes, literally. We just do it inside. And your cynicism is the enemy of empathy, right? You get so sort of burned out on everyone going, I'm oppressed. And you're going, I don't think you are, right? And so you just kind of retreat and your empathy just dies. And you can no longer actually have empathy for people who are really oppressed it's a serious danger for the church right now and not seeing a lot of empathy i'm seeing a lot of politics i'm seeing a lot of outrage and a lot of uh like like 
oh, we're you know, the church, we're so persecuted. We'll next, that's next week's topic, persecution. A lot of selfish kind of licking our wounds, feeling sorry for ourselves, and not a lot of empathy. I'm very worried about that. It's one of the reasons why we need to think about this. So there can be any category of people that are refused access to society based on race, creed, gender, age, etc., etc. There are real oppressed people in our culture. There really are. So one of the questions we need to ask ourselves when we read all these scriptures about reaching out to the poor and pouring ourselves out for the hungry is where's my empathy? Have I allowed this constant droning of causes? We talked about this last week. False causes. You get burned out on it. I've got a GoFundMe page for lost dogs, and I've got a GoFundMe page for lost cats. Why anyone would <laughs> care, I don't know. But I've got a GoFundMe page for this cause and that cause, and we should, you should really care about my thing. And eventually you just get burned out on it. And then when you come across someone who's actually oppressed and needs your defense, you can't drum up any feeling at all for them. That's the problem. It's not how Jesus was. And the third category I would give in trying to define this idea of poor in the Bible is the weak. The last biblical category of poor is the sick, the aged, mentally ill, the unborn, children in general, physically or mentally handicapped, etc. People who are physically or mentally weak, little children, unborn children, all of those kinds of people who need our help, who need to be defended by people who God made in his sovereignty strong, like my dad who is aged. He's pretty strong, though. Trust me, I think he could probably still take me. He's a little too quick to get me put in the weak category. I, he just look. He just wants somebody to take care of him. All right. It's important. I want to really. This is true for all of these three categories. It's important to note that by weak, the Bible does not mean inferior. Your human nature wants to think that's true. Your human nature wants to think that weak equals inferior, but it's not how God sees it, okay? Capitalism, oh boy. It's a great economic system. I really do believe that. However, it does favor the physically and mentally strong, does it not? Part of why the church exists is to strengthen the weak. Because our culture is not going to do it. Oh, so that's three ways to define poor. Economically disadvantaged, um, the oppressed, and the weak, okay? Now that we've sorted that out, let's talk about the Good Samaritan. Because all of that's, we can all go, yeah, yeah, that's true, and then walk away and have no accountability to actually doing something. Then Jesus comes along. And these were things, by the way, that were debated amongst Jewish scholars, Okay? What does it mean to love your neighbor? That's what we're talking about, okay? What does it mean, and who is my neighbor? And we really, if we're honest, would like to define that as narrowly as possible, right? 
My neighbor is literally the guy on either side of my house. But you know what? That guy might not really be my neighbor. Maybe neighbor just means other Christians. That was one of the opinions amongst Jewish scholars at the time was that neighbor was just those who were in the Jewish community. And maybe we could narrow that down to maybe just the town you live in. And that was the debate. So a scholar comes to Jesus. He's literally called a lawyer in the text, which I think is fun. Silly lawyers. My dad was a lawyer, so I'm just taking a shot. I know, strike two, I'm in trouble. All right. So a scribe or a lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's trying to draw Jesus into the debate, right? And trying to catch him, catch him making a blunder. And here's his response in Luke 10, 30 to 37. Jesus replied with a story, a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He crossed the road to avoid even going near him. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Samaritans, if you don't know, were like pretenders. They had moved into Jewish territory while the Jews had been thrown out and were in captivity. And they moved in and they mixed their pagan worship, idol worship, with what they found left behind of Jewish belief and worship. They had mixed it all together in this ugly mess, right? They had their own temple to worship, worship in. They had their own belief system. And, they, and it's, it was like almost Yahweh worship, but not quite. And it so offended the Jews, and rightfully so, okay? It was not true faith. Jesus said so when he talked to the woman at the well. It's another story, but he says it in that story. If you don't believe me, go read it. He says, yeah, yeah, they're doing it, you're doing it wrong. But, so these, Jesus has a choice. He's making up this story. Who's he's, who is he going to make the good guy in the story? Is it the priest? Is it the Levite? Those are the two most kind of holy, revered, sanctified classes in that culture. The two best people he could think of. That those people would have heard, oh, the priest is walking down the street. Oh, he's going to do something. He's really holy. Oh, the Levite's walking down the street. He's going to do something. He's really holy. He comes from the lineage of holy people. Both of those guys turn out to be jerks. And they cross the road to avoid him, right? 
That's Isaiah 58. They look holy on the outside, but in their hearts they are unsubmitted to God. And we know that by how they treat the poor and the oppressed lying on the side of the road. Right? Jesus demonstrates Isaiah 58 right there in that story. And who's the hero of the story? The hero is the least likely, most reprobate, most hated person in that culture that he's telling this story to. It's the Samaritan. And the Samaritan does the right thing. And so here we have Jesus, who is God, praising the Samaritan of all people for actually demonstrating Christ-like love for real neighbors. And not only did he stop to help him, he did so at great expense to himself. He paid a high financial price and a high inconvenience price. He stopped wherever it was that Samaritan was going that day. He did not go there, or he went there very late. He stopped. He didn't just say, brother, bless you. I'm so sorry this has happened to you. I really feel your pain. Do you mind if I share with you a few scriptures? Here's a tract. Read it while you lie there in your bloody mess. I'm sorry I have a meeting to go to. I'm preaching, by the way. It's a very big deal for me. Hopefully someone else will come along. I'll call someone as I go that might come and help you, right? No, he stopped wherever he was going. Very inconvenient. And he bound the guy's wounds right there in the road. And he could have left right there. I've done enough. I've satisfied. I've ticked the box. Remember the poor. Off I go where I was headed. No, he doesn't do that either. He gets the guy and he puts him on his donkey, meaning now this guy has to walk and lead his donkey with the broken man riding on it instead of him. And they go to an inn. He sets him up. He gives the guy some money. And then he says, I'll be back. So he comes back. He says, I'm going to come back. And I'll pay whatever it costs to take care of that guy until he's totally better. Very expensive. Very inconvenient. That's what I mean by when Jesus starts to define what it means to love and what your neighbor is, it gets much harder. So this man who was robbed was actually poor in all three senses that we discussed already. He was economically disadvantaged. He had been <laughs> stripped of everything, right? Naked, lying on the ground. He was oppressed, obviously, and weak. He'd been beaten. Robbed of his money, beaten, and was too injured to even help himself. So I think it's easy. Vic Spencer has pointed this out before. That to over-apply this. To say, well, this means I, I have a responsibility to help everyone. Now, some of you have very tender hearts. You have no idea what it's like not to have empathy for somebody. You, you've never experienced that in your life. You have empathy for everybody from, from the little birdie that hit your window <laughs> all the way up to everybody in the entire world. Okay? You have empathy for everyone, and you have this your weakness is that you, you feel this compulsion to help everyone to the point of it being not healthy. We have no boundaries. You have never said the word no. Or if you do, it's been like a whisper that no one could hear. Right? Others of you, I think maybe most of us, are not that way. 
And so that we can look at this story, I think, and say this is, this is the call. The call is to help whoever's right in front of you. Your neighbor is the poor person in any one of those three senses that we've discussed who is right, in, that God put right in front of you, who's saying, I need help. It's refusing to cross the road and to avoid what's right in front of you, okay? So on an individual level, if someone crosses your path that needs your help, you are obligated. Oh, I'm using that word. Obligated. It is your, du- your Christian duty. How's that for a southern word? It's your Christian duty, your obligation to consider it prayerfully and with wisdom. It doesn't mean you give money to every guy on the street corner with a sign. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you give money to every con man in a gas station parking lot. However, you're going to get ripped off. You start doing this, you're going to get ripped off. I had to learn this the hard way because I was unprepared for the eventuality when I became a pastor, people just walking in the door saying, hey, I need some money for this vet. And I was here by myself all the time. I had to, now it's better. We have a little benevolence committee that makes these decisions together and a, and a benevolence policy. It's great. And a benevolence account that you, can, you guys can put money into and some of you do. And we can, and there's easier ways to make decisions. But originally it was just me. And, so, and I'm going, how is this guy trying to rip me off? And I'm asking questions. And I'm kind of feeling like, I think he's lying to me. And usually it's like half true and half a lie. Remember this one guy came in on a Sunday. And he said, I need gas money to get to wherever I'm going. I said, okay, I'll take you down to the gas station down here. And I had already decided I was going to fill up his tank. He had only asked for like $10. Well, I just need $10 in my tank to get me wherever I'm going. And he had this whole story, and I sort of, I think it was true. I don't know. So we're standing there in the Sheets parking lot, and I'm pumping his gas. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to fill it up. I'm not going to just give him $10. I'll just fill it up. And then he starts spinning this yarn, telling this story that was so obviously not true about why, you know, now that I think about it, I really need a full tank of gas because, and he starts lying through his, you just tell he's lying. And I just looked at him and said, you don't have to lie to me. I'm, I'm going to fill up your tank. Stop. And he kept, just couldn't help it. He just kept lying. And I said, you really don't have to tell me this story. I know you're lying to me. I'm going to fill up your tank. I decided 10 minutes ago I was going to fill up your tank with gas. Just stop. Just stop talking. You're going to talk yourself out of me giving you more gas. <laughs> just zzz, zzz. And he's like, well, I'm just, I'm not really, you know. And I filled it up and just sent him on his way. People are going to rip you off. And you have no way of knowing. You do not know when someone's lying to you because some people are great at it. It's like their spiritual gift. They're it's like a demonic gift, a demonic spiritual gift. Like they can lie, and you're like, wow, that's, you're crying. <laughs> I'm just so sorry you're in this position, and I'm just really going to have, and then, you, then later you're like, ah, that didn't, I think that guy was lying to me, because it didn't, you start thinking about the details that didn't come stick out to you at the time, and you realize, ah, hmm. He had one, one guy fake pregnancy. 
not the guy, his girlfriend. <laughs> he talked his girlfriend into pretending to be pregnant so they could get money from her. Susan was there for that one. That was fun. Now that guy's in jail. Hit somebody at a hit and run on the side of the road. After we gave him a tire, fixed his tire so that he could go run somebody over with it on 85 South. True story. People will rip you off. You got to get over it. I, I'm not helping you because I think your story is true and your story is good enough and you're qualified enough, you're bad off enough that I feel like I can justify giving you 20 bucks. I am reaching out to you because I belong to Jesus and he has told me, don't you dare just fast and not care about the poor. And so I'm going to care about the poor. I'm, this is my fast, is giving you this money. And if you want to use it and abuse it in some way, I'm going to do the best I can. We do the best we can to like talk to people. And if somebody's, we, we limit how much money they can get in a year. We do all this stuff. But you know what? There's no way to know. Jesus does not say the man who was beaten on the side of the road was this noble hard-working, not-on-welfare guy. He was a good man. He deserved the Samaritan's help. No, he just says it was a dude, just a dude on the side of the road, no qualifications. And the Samaritan doesn't come up and say, are you hard-working? Are you in this position because of your choices or because life is just hard and it happened to you? Because if it's your choices, I will not help you. He doesn't do that. Jesus never asks those questions. Look through all the people Jesus healed. Does he ever interview them and say, do you deserve this? No. Because the only thing it requires is being one of those three things. And he will. you got to be sick for him to heal you. And that's the only qualification. But you see how this really does confront some stuff, some works mentality kind of this American pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps thing because you make it about the qualifications of the person receiving help and not about just, I belong to Jesus, and he said, how I treat the poor demonstrates what's really in my heart. And so I'm going to do this as an act of worship, a fast unto God, and whether you're ripping me off or you deserve it or don't, I'm going to try my best, but you know what? Now, the question does come up, what does it mean to actually help? That's a very hard question. Does it actually help somebody to continually give them money? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. No easy answer to that. Sometimes it might be right to give the guy on the street asking for money a couple of bucks. Most of the time, I'd say it's probably not. Right? But God might speak to you. I'm never going to tell you to never do that. Because God might speak to you and say, do it. And you say, all right, I'm just going to do it. Right? I might get ripped off. He might go use it to buy liquor. I'm just going to do what God tells me to do. Okay? The key here is not letting the inconvenience or the expense of it slow you down. That is part of the value of it. Just like fasting, the part of the value of fasting is the denial of yourself, the not eating. 
in, in the case of reaching out to the hungry and the oppressed, part of the value is that it is costing you something. All right, corporately, as a church, I think there's some similar questions. Who is it that's right in front of us, right? Kind of metaphorically speaking. I told you we have a benevolence fund that you can and many of you do contribute to when people come to LHC with a need. Our benevolence team evaluates that need as best as we can and then helps or doesn't. Um, I mentioned last week the Nagel Hope Community Group has been doing some ministry at the Bradford Nursing Home. That's another great thing. If you want to know what to do, just tag along with them. It's really cool. In years past, um, we had medical missions teams go to Haiti. That came across our path as like an open door. We said, hey, yeah, we'll do that. You don't need to really pray about that that much. It's one of the things we charismatic types tend to kind of overpray about things sometimes. You really need a word not to. Because <laughs> there's over a hundred scriptures that say just do it. Right? You don't need a fresh word. You got a hundred plus fresh words right here saying pour yourself out for the hungry. Right? I don't know God. Should I? It's right there. It's like you don't need a word from God to go overseas on a missions trip. You need a word not to. Because it's the mission of God, right? You don't need a, I don't think you need a, this is controversial. I don't think you need a word from God about whether or not to adopt. You need a word not to. These are things that are established in scripture that you can't get around. You've got to look at it and go, is that, do I get out of that or do I not? You with me? So corporately, we, it's the same thing. As a church, we have to do things. I think this is an area of weakness for us. It's not like there's a lack of, it's not like there's nothing going on for the poor, but there is a weakness. Just like I think local mission, there's a weakness here that I'm praying God will help us with. Now there are doors opening into our local Hispanic community, and we're exploring that. It's a similar thing. As a church, we're constantly thinking, okay, is this a good Samaritan kind of situation where there's is this something, an opportunity right in front of us saying, hey, help me. And we say yes. And we go through that door, and if the door closes, that's fine. We're going to go through it. So when God brings opportunities in front of us as a church, we are obligated, just like you are as an individual, we are obligated to pray about it and consider it. One of the common objections I get, one, one I've already talked about, which is, are they qualified? I think it's a bad idea to think that way. The other is, what, you know, we, we, shouldn't, um, we should not help the poor with strings attached. Meaning, look, I'll, I'll help you if you'll come to church. Right? Like, that's a condition of help. A lot of people who come here looking for help will barter with me. It's fascinating. Like, this works mentality has worked its way into this guy's heart that doesn't even know Jesus. So they'll say, take, you know, look, I don't, I'll pay you back. Lie. How are you going to pay me back? You're not, you, you're not able to, but I have to offer this guy something in order to get him to help me. So I either lie and tell a story that might convince him that I'm qualified to get help, <clears throat> or I'll barter. What do I have to give that I think this Christian pastor wants from me. 
either to pay him back or I'll come to church on Sunday. That's a tough one. Because I don't want to say, no, don't come to church. Because I would love you to come to church. But not as payment. I'll say, I don't, I'm going to help you whether you come to church or not. I would love you to come to church. But it is not a condition. I want you to meet Jesus, but that is not a condition of me helping you. I'm helping you because Jesus commands me to do it. Oh. So that's right that we should not have strings attached. However, you knew there was a butt coming. Right, no bait and switch. I hate the bait and switch. I'll help you out if you let me pray for you. I'll help you out if you come to church. I'll help you out if you let me present the gospel to you. I'll help you out if. That should never be the condition. But Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, we all have heard it, I'm sure, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? John Piper puts it a little more pointedly where he says, let's be careful that we're not sending people to hell with full bellies. It's not enough just to fill a person's belly. Our ultimate goal is to see them come to Christ, to not go to hell, right? It's our ultimate desire that the mission of God would never be disconnected from the command from God to remember the poor. So this week's topic is directly connected to last week's topic. We are not only trying to solve problems, we are trying to demonstrate the merciful and generous heart of the Father to a world that is convinced otherwise. So, you see, this is the problem with only being generous to people that we think deserve it. Is that the gospel? It's the opposite of the gospel. If you're good enough, Jesus will die for you. Do, you, do we believe, is the gospel that Jesus looked into the future and saw who would deserve it and died only for them? No, he looked and he said, all of y'all are broken. All of y'all. That's all of you people. Right? No one deserves it. And so why then would we take our generosity and make it based on the law and not grace? Again, I know we got to have wisdom. I feel some of y'all going, yeah, but. Stop, stop throwing butts. Put your butts behind you. A little dad joke for you, all right? We're not just trying to solve problems. We're trying to demonstrate what God is like. We're trying to demonstrate what the gospel is. Look, I know you're messed up. I know some of these problems are your fault. I know you got into this mess because of some bad decisions you made and continue to make and may continue to make for the rest of your life. And I know this, what I'm going about to do to help you may or may not actually help. I'm just doing the best I can to try to help. But I'm just doing it not because you deserve it or because you gave me a great story or you're a really good liar or you were really honest. I'm just doing it because this is what God is like. This is what God has done for me. He has blessed me long before I ever deserved it. He blessed me while I was lying to him. He saved me when I was a sinner. He saved me. He died for me while I was his enemy, while I was against him. I was living and fighting for the enemy's camp against him. I was directly opposed in rebellion against him, and he died for me. This is what God is like. 
the New, the New Testament version of Isaiah 58, I think, is James 2, 14 to 17. James has a lot to say about this topic. I almost used him instead of Isaiah, but here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you can't see faith, right? You can't see it. Just like the Holy Spirit, you can't see the Holy Spirit. But what you can see is works. What you can't see is the works that come from faith, right? So how do you know if you have faith or if someone else has faith based on what they do, right? And the example James gives, just like God did through Isaiah in Isaiah 58, the example of that is faith without works is like going up to someone who's poor and saying, God bless you, may you be filled, giving them a, a spiritual kind of religious platitude, maybe even a prayer, and then moving on without actually helping them. It's faith without works. The works tell you that faith is present. If no works are present, then we can safely assume that there's no faith. May that not be true of us. Amen? I want to be called, I want our church to be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. So, your homework this week, and your, I don't know how many of you are actually doing it, but every week we do a devotional based on the sermon, and your homework this week is to actually think about who is right in front of you, going back to that Samaritan story, who is right in front of you, in your life right now, who is it, probably multiples, it might not be an individual, it might be some Something that God's put in your heart, maybe, a, maybe volunteering or taking some piece of your budget every month and putting that into the benevolence fund, um, sending money to Mozambique, uh, whatever it might be, volunteering somewhere, doing something in the church. We're doing it. We're we're planning some outreaches into the Hispanic community that I'm excited about. Kind of following the idea of mission and reaching the oppressed, both of them. Defending, strengthening, I think it's a cool thing. So I want you to all individually this week to be thinking about, okay, what does this mean? Because I don't want God to say Isaiah 58 about me. Right? I want to be the repairer of the breach. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do in response to this. Why don't we stand up and I'm going to pray for us. Specifically, I'd like to pray for our empathy if you look at when Jesus did things quite often it was it's either compassion or it's a response to their faith some people don't have any faith and Jesus just has compassion on them and I am finding a scary lack of just confessing it a scary lack of compassion and empathy 
for other people, like anybody. I really think it's tied to some of the stuff going on in our culture where it's just constantly battered with. Like, there's just so many needs, it sort of feels overwhelming. So I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, soften my heart, so that I can actually see what's right in front of me, right? That I can actually see it and not feel this kind of compulsive, i got to help everybody thing, which is overwhelming and leads to inaction. But I want to have the Holy Spirit soften my heart so I can actually see what he's put in front of me. Amen? So that's what I want to pray for. Let's do that. God, we recognize that the orphans and widows, the economically disadvantaged, the weak, and the oppressed are all very important to you. God, and we confess quite often they are not important enough to us. So first of all, Lord, we just repent of that. And we recognize our lack. God, we ask you to, by your spirit, this week as we just take time to to get before you and to just search our own hearts and search our own lives and our own priorities, and we ask you just to show us who you have placed right in front of us, whether they be um, people in this church or in our neighborhood or maybe somebody on the other side of town or other side of the world, whatever it may be, God, would you instruct us, each one of us and our families about what it means to remember the poor, to be good Samaritans. And God, I pray that as a church, you would strengthen us in this area. God, that you would show us as a church where the open doors are, what is and who is right in front of us. God, help us to never diminish the poor and think of them as less than. God, if anyone is to be pitied, it's the rich young ruler who had too much to give away that he couldn't get into the kingdom of God. God, keep us from false sentimental pity and make us people that know how to love like Jesus loved. Teach us how to love without condition, how to be generous without expecting people to be qualified for it. Teach us how to genuinely actually help. God, in some people's lives, even knowing how to help is very difficult. We need you to help us. So God, I pray that not only would you show us who's right in front of us, but teach us, give us wisdom, teach us how to actually be generous. These things are so complicated sometimes. So we ask you, God, we we confess we are willing to dive into the messiness of it. We ask that you would lead us in the name of Jesus. Amen.